Are you interested in creating proper urban connections? What do you think is the architect's job in the urban fabric? What kind of approach is needed for the future of cities? Stay tuned for the answers from Chris Maher. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation that this is the right place? Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Chris Maher, an architect and city planner, and the director and national portfolio leader for urban development at Hames Charlie. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, urban vital energy, distinct urban characteristics, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. The last 30 years has seen Chris Maher working in architecture and urban design throughout the UK, Hong Kong, and Australia. Now, he resides in Perth, Western Australia, where he is a director and the national portfolio leader for urban development at Hames Charlie. Chris is on a mission to continue to articulate the importance of economic rigor and social understanding in the delivery of environmentally responsive place-based design. The value of good design innovation and creativity is more important than ever and is essential to ensure sustainable outcomes in the future of our built world. Strategic thinking and careful, considered leadership has enabled Chris to build teams ready to imagine and deliver well-researched contextual designs. These designs include city center waterfronts, educational, heritage, and mixed-use developments in the UK, Hong Kong, and throughout every major city in Australia. Understanding clients and their values together with an ability to collaborate and clearly communicate with the community and all stakeholders is a unique and vital skill Chris provides throughout each project lifecycle. Chris is also a design advisor to many local and state government agencies, such as the WA State Design Review Panel and the MRA and Development WA, and has sat on the board of several non-for-profits dedicated to ensuring Western Australia becomes a state of creativity. And with that, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Chris, thank you so much for your time and appearance on the podcast. Let's start with what does the future of cities mean to you? Whenever I think about cities, I really think about people. I think that cities exist because of the desires of people to meet, to collaborate, and obviously for commerce and civic requirements. So I think that the future of cities will continue in that regard. I think they often need to change and adapt, and that's a good thing. But when I think of them, I I really think about people. A city is different to a town because there are more people and it has an intensification that comes with that. That can cause problems with traffic and pollution and things like that. But it can cause these amazing things where people come together and can participate in all sorts of events. And uh, I find that quite exciting. Coming back to your note on city versus towns, Mm -hmm. do you differentiate them only based on population numbers? I think that's a big part of it. I think cities have that vital energy, but there are there are similarities also. And I think that towns tend to be smaller, but they can have many of the civic and public requirements of a bigger city. And some of the best cities actually do have almost parts of them which are almost identifiable as towns within a city. And I think London, for instance, has that quality whereby you can travel from one precinct to another within the city 
and they have different characteristics. Some are on the river, some are away from the river, but have their own qualities which relate to their history. They may be former industrial sites, they may be historical sites. So I think cities are often quite interesting, and certainly big cities like London are interesting because they are like a lot of connected towns in many ways, and that adds to that richness and complexity as well in terms of councils and governance that adds a complexity. But it can also provide a voice for people in large cities. At least they have their local voice within their smaller community, their town within a city, as it were. Going back to what you just said, that cities have vital energy. Mm. Why do they have this vital energy? What is this vital energy? Mm. Yes, I thought you might ask me this question. So it's a good question. Why do they have that? I think a lot of it is to do with the densification of people. When you put lots of people together, all sorts of interesting things can happen. And some of them, are, as, as I've said before, some of them are good and some of them are, are not so good. But I think that cities, and I'm thinking I lived in Sydney for a long time, so I've been there quite frequently and will go there again in a couple of weeks. But Sydney is, to me, a place of great activity and vibrancy. I think back to Sydney and it's the journeys to and from and the spaces to and from work. The city itself occupies those spaces between work, home and play. And I think that if you live in an interesting city, then you are rewarded whenever you travel and move around that city. And things happen that you don't always anticipate. I've lived in Hong Kong as well, and that's a city where there are many, many people. I used to feel very safe there. I'm not sure if I would feel quite so safe these days. I think that cities are really exciting, vibrant places because of all the things that can occur there. And some of them are not so good. And I think in some ways that may even heighten your experience. I remember going to Los Angeles once and doing a walking tour. It's a self-guided tour. I had the book and I was in the CBD in Los Angeles and I was enjoying the tour and there were interesting buildings and interesting architectural elements. And then I got lost and wandered off the wrong path. And it got quite interesting in another way and quite concerning until I got back onto my path again. And so I'll not forget that nothing happened, nothing bad happened. But I do remember walking along and thinking, ah, the tone, the mood, the atmosphere has changed. And I think cities create that. There's an atmosphere with certain cities, which can be quite joyful and celebratory. I think of Sydney during the Olympic Games. But yeah, you can have those experiences where you're quite fearful. And certainly in cities in the UK, I've had to sort of sprint from time to time to escape what I anticipated to be quite a negative encounter. So I think all of those elements come together to make cities a very interesting place. And then this idea of being part of a community as well, because cities are a place of connection. That's really vital to me. And you can connect with many people in many different ways in a city. And that excites me. It's a place of commerce, obviously, and that's important, but place of community. And I think that sense of attachment and civic pride is important. And, you know, great sporting events also are part of that experience. We just had one on Saturday night. I went to see the Fremantle Dockers play Western Bulldogs. And, and that was a really exciting event, mainly because we all thought we were going to lose. So I think those events, I really enjoy those. And I really enjoy the journey as well. Transport, movement, people. 
that excites me. How has your meaning of city, urban vibrancy and urban life changed during the COVID? This is another good question. I think that if anything, I believe that it has heightened the need for connection. I believe that we can see some of it. I think during COVID, maybe 12 months ago, it was more evident in some neighborhood centers. Shopping, retail became very important and a very focused part of life. Perth has suffered from people moving out of the city. I mean, there was a good reason. We didn't go through as many lockdowns as Melbourne, but a lot of people chose to work at home to avoid catching COVID and because it was far more convenient and because technology allows us to now. But I think that something was lost in that we weren't coming together as much. We weren't collaborating and having those incidental, some of them unplanned meetings that often happen when you're out and about in a, in a vibrant, busy city. And so I think that this city changed during that time and it's coming back now because people have been returning to work. I feel that we'll always have that flexibility of working from home for part of our working week or working month. But I really believe that people have missed that ability to connect at social events, at sporting events, at civic events and community events. I've missed that. And I think others have as well. I believe that we're humans and most humans are people that want to connect. And I think that's why cities have been created over the years, I suppose. They've been created because they were secure places. They were a place where you were together with others and that collective made you feel more secure. They were there for community, security, all of those elements to help protect one from the environment as well. Those requirements of a city are still there in many ways. I think now we have perhaps more issues regarding homelessness and we have issues regarding crime and all those things, but they have been around as well for millennia as well. But I think the cities are changing. And I think we'll find that people do want to celebrate more. They do want to come together. They want to work together. And I think we're going to continue to need to provide for that and facilitate those elements and ingredients that enable communities to flourish. Then what are the three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities for you? I'm very fearful of cities not being designed properly. So that is something that concerns me. I feel that cities provide great opportunity for housing choice and different housing typologies, different work typologies from, you know, working as a collective, working with a corporation, being a startup. All of those things are possible within a city. And there's a great efficiency within a city. So I do fear pollution and a growing pollution. And I think sprawl, certainly Perth is an enormous city north to south. It is bigger than Los Angeles, which just doesn't seem to make sense to me. But uh, I think it's changing. We are densifying parts of the city, which is good. I think that if it's done well, the city can grow and benefit from that densification we can create. 
we can actually create those small towns we were talking about earlier. We can create those nodes, those hubs, and give them an identity that's different to some of its neighbours in a positive way. So that people, once you create an environment, a town within a city that has its own character and characteristics, then people can attach to that and people feel that they can identify with that as a place. And I think that that's very exciting. And I think Perth has... Today, too much urban sprawl, too much suburban sprawl that's not been considered carefully enough. And hopefully we can change that with repurposing of brownfield sites, of industrial sites. And then the government seems to be putting in place good infrastructure at the moment and railway infrastructure. But it is more than infrastructure. And uh, I think the government needs to focus on having a legacy that is a bit more than railway stations. And uh, that's a good start. (laughs) And then transport and public transport is a very good start, but it is only a start. There's much more that needs to be done in terms of creating those nodal areas within the city of Perth and then providing facilities there within those nodes that um, make them very livable places to be with housing choice. The other fears, well, I think sprawl was one, and I think we need to get bigger in different ways, get bigger in smarter ways. I think rather than just growing outwards, we need to grow upwards, but carefully. That's a fear that we won't get that right. Pollution, I think we live in a time where that's really being dealt with now, and we understand the benefits of designing carefully, co-location, where we can build, where we can't build. I think the recent floods on the East Coast tell us that we're, and fires as well. I think those are two factors that need to be very, very carefully considered moving forward. Rising seawater levels, that's important as well, particularly as most of our population is around the coastal areas of Australia. And I think we need to make sure that we are designing and building houses in the right place and towns rather than in floodplains and areas that are too susceptible to either bushfires or floods. Do you really fear that the governments are moving to the right direction? They are moving in the right direction. They made some good moves. But for instance, in regards to social housing here in Western Australia, the government is moving at a slow pace. I think that they need to be more bold. We have a perfect storm in many regards for undertaking the needed task of providing more social and affordable housing because we have a Labor state government and a Labor federal government. WA now has a fairer GST arrangement with the other states. And also, despite issues globally around resources, WA is blessed with good resources. And so the royalties from that should be turned into a legacy of housing for everybody. And I'm not sure that the government really is doing enough in that particular area. And uh, I think others feel that way as well. I think, yes, it's good to partner with the private sector, but you can't just allow that to drive everything. I think it's really important that social housing is very much on government's agenda. And I think it's the same in other states as well. And something has to be done. It's not an easy task. It's not easy to do. But I think that given that some of the statistics that I've been reading, it's something that you can't avoid and has to take place. And other countries have done it in the past. The UK has. I'm not sure how well 
prepared they are at the moment in terms of social housing. I grew up in a council house and spent the first 22 years of my life in a government housing estate and in a very small house. And there were eight of us. Um, so, uh, But it was well designed. The rooms were good sizes. There was a system, Parker Morris housing standards. And so each of the rooms was well designed and it made a difference. And so I know that design makes a difference when it's working well. So I think the government needs to sort of just get on board with that. And uh, I know they are. It's a difficult task, but I think they can do more. What would you suggest them to do? It has to be a layered approach. I think you can work with non-for-profits and there are various non-for-profits here that do social housing, like foundation housing, and that's good. And you need assistance support them. I feel that you need to give some direction to the private sector so that they understand. It is very difficult. And thirdly, though, I think the government needs to actually start to invest in building its own social housing stock. And not creating enclave, I think they can be part of those towns we've talked about, towns within cities. They can be near that railway line and that railway station that they're just about to build so that people have good access to public transport and can move around the city for jobs. I think there has to be those sort of non-for-profits, private sector and governments as well. And then there needs to be a way of learning which is working best. How is it working? How can we adapt some of those elements um, to change and improve the living standards that we've all come to enjoy and accept? I think otherwise we're going to have even more problems than we're currently having with mental health issues and health issues. It makes good sense for the government to build houses because of benefits that it brings. My personal experience with looking at politics from far, far away yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that the representatives are not really thinking about legacy or the mm. long term. Mm. And yes. you mentioned that they should. Do yes. you feel that they are switching from the re-election cycles to thinking about legacies? I hope so. I hope that they are thinking more about legacy. Yeah, I think certainly the previous federal government thought very much about elections and marketing opportunities and ways of canvassing voters. And obviously, all of that is part of political life. I believe that this state has an opportunity now to be able to think about legacy and think about what that really means for us society. I think housing is such an important requirement for people. And we have a prime minister now who also grew up in social housing and understands how important it is. And where I grew up, yeah, there were bad parts to it, but there was definitely a sense of community and everybody looked out for everybody else. I feel that the legacy will be far more than It won't just be the buildings. It will be that sense of community. It will be that reduction in the number of people who are homeless. It will be that sense of cohesion and feeling of belonging. Those things are, they're priceless, really. You can't put a price on those things. And they do lead to better education and they do lead to better health, mental and physical health. I think any government, uh, certainly in Western Australia, should be really thinking hard about that. It is hard. It's difficult. 
And I know how difficult it is that you can't leave it all to the private sector. I've seen, I've worked on private government partnerships and it is difficult. The government sector wants to cap rents. The private sector wants to really inevitably, they want to grow rents and the value in their asset. And that's how they make money. That's how they grow their business. And it's hard. I mean, even the staging of a master plan and how you roll out I worked on a master plan for a government-private partnership and worked with the developer to help where should we build first, second, third stage to grow value. And then the government was mortified because they wanted the rents to stay as they were. How is this going to create affordability if we're upping the price of houses and apartments as we develop? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) very hard to reconcile those different targets. So I think that's a reason why the government needs to be actually just getting out there and building some houses themselves. It's very expensive to build at the moment, but I think there are ways of doing it efficiently. I think build to rent is an interesting current typology that's being talked about and is happening. And I know Mervac, for instance, have invested quite a bit of money in looking into it and that they've got some buildings on the ground there that are built to rent. But again, It's hard to imagine that the rents are going to, they could well be more affordable than mortgage with a rising interest rate. But how are you going to protect that rent? How is it always going to be affordable? And they are going to compete against other built-to-rent developers. Yes, you can compete with more facilities, better lease arrangements. But at the end of the day, it is a competitive world and you will be wanting to increase profits and profitability. And it's sometimes the customer (laughs) that is left behind and has to pay a higher rent, I think. How would these, for example, governmental social housing projects not become slums, not become gated Mm -hmm. communities? How could we do that? I think, again, there are models from elsewhere in the world. And certainly, I think that the place in which I grew up, which was in Birmingham, which is the UK's second largest city, was quite a well-designed housing estate. It had good parts and bad parts. Every city does. But there were opportunities there for families over time to buy their house. And that seemed to work quite well in many of the streets. People did buy their own homes and they would take care of them. They saw that they were investing in that location, in that community, and that was good. So there are ways of undertaking that. I think the design of social housing has to be done very, very carefully and very well and efficiently. But I think also the days of large housing estates that are social housing are over. I think it's really important to pepper and salt these developments in amongst other developments. I personally find it quite interesting when you've got a variety of housing typologies, including social housing, in various neighbourhoods. I find them to be more interesting in many ways. I mean, if you think back to the UK, again, think of places like Bath and other beautiful cities. They would have all sorts of people living in very close proximity because you didn't want to have to travel too far to get somebody who was a tailor or somebody who could help you and facilitate different needs. So everybody lived in close proximity. It was upstairs, downstairs, literally. And if you think carefully, places like Woolloomooloo in Sydney, where I used to work in Woolloomooloo, is a place that's changed a lot. 
And you have houses there that are council houses. We used to be the same in Walsh Bay, but I think that's pretty much finished in that because I think the government has sold a lot of the houses there, which were social houses, because they became so valuable. But Woolloomooloo certainly has a lot of council houses, cheek by jowl with McMansions, and it seems to not be a major issue. I don't know. I haven't lived and worked there for a long time, but it certainly, don't to me, actually added layers of interest and complexity that was a positive. That sounds reassuring. And with this kind of mixing and matching, livability and vital energy could be preserved for cities. What are the three biggest opportunities? I think technology is probably one of those opportunities. Technology and particularly related to transport. I think that good access to public transport is really important. And I think most governments accept and understand that. And there are positives in terms of creating hubs. And hubs can be around medical centers. They can be around hospitals. They can be focused on commerce or on many other activities, education. And I think we're seeing now, well, we were pre-COVID, and it's going to happen again, I think. Universities that wanted to be within the city hub, universities that wanted to be part of the fabric of the city. And we are just commenced construction on a new university in the city here in Perth, immediately adjacent to the railway station, Edith Cowan University. So that's quite exciting. Comes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, this idea of towns within towns or hubs within hubs, that idea of creating activity which can have a focus that enriches the lives of everybody in the city. So uh, Edith Cowan University has WAPA here. So we'll have many theatres within it that they wish to open to the public. And I think those synergies and co-location opportunities that come with that are really exciting for everybody that lives, works or uses a city. So I think that technology, I think the opportunity around transport and reintroducing uses Well, certainly Perth has not really had a university in the city. The University of Western Australia is a little bit detached from the city. So having a university right at its heart will make a big difference to the city of Perth in a very positive way. So I think those are some of the opportunities. I'm sure there are more. I mean, I think the revitalization and reuse and repurposing of industrial sites, which most cities are looking carefully at. And I know that Fisherman's Bend in Melbourne is being re-looked at and replanned. I think it's really important to try and retain some of that texture would be good, that sort of identity, so that you've got that connection with the past, as well as really looking towards the future. And there are a number of developers here in WA who are very good at creating that sense of identity and attachment and making a lot out of that connection to history be it European or Indigenous history, even for that matter. So I think that that's another opportunity and recycling old buildings and looking at different ways of using them and infrastructure as well as the High Line in New York and other elements. Here in Perth, there are two power stations which are being looked at for repurposing. It's a challenge and it's not easily done, but I think that's exciting. And there are um, a number of developers here who really understand that challenge, but they also understand the benefits and the connection that people can have with history and older buildings and that texture. And for instance, Fremantle is full of older timber and brick buildings that have that character and that quality, that um, patina and texture, which is hard to replicate. So I think 
if you do build on that, you come up with really more authentic outcomes, which have this connection to the future, but certainly still have a connection to the past. I think that's exciting. It is, certainly. Could you give us an example? What do you mean technology in transportation? Okay, yeah. I think the use of batteries, and I know that certain cities, certainly Birmingham in the UK, is looking at all electric buses, I think by 2025, I think it is. They're doing all sorts of interesting things, looking at battery use. They're looking at batteries at bus stops. So instead of parking them all in a garage at 1am in the morning, when everybody's gone to bed and then running it off the grid because it's cheap, looking at staging and doing a lot of analysis about how and when is the best time to recharge their buses. They created a problem in that there was so much draw on the grid that I think they were finding it difficult and there were power outages. So they're now having to adapt and, and work around that. But they're looking to try and be very smart and very careful about how they can utilize batteries in a very positive way. I think, obviously, electric vehicles, that's a big opportunity for cities. We do need to think about the start now. It's, again, nothing's easy. It needs to be thought about. Things are only hard because we haven't actually cracked the issue or solved the problem. But what do we do with car parks, you know, when we are being conveyed around in driverless vehicles? I mean, it will happen at some point. will be more driverless vehicles. Wow, what does that mean? we've got so much space, then we can really focus on creating streets that reward pedestrians and reward the people on the street. And they don't have to be designed around the engineering related to cars and buses and things like that. So, well, maybe buses still, but the reign of the car, it's certainly there's a future that can deal with it much more differently to the way we're dealing with it now. And I think it's impacted our lives very significantly in some good ways over time. But I think its reign will come to an end and we'll be more focused on public transport and different ways and different modes of transport because of technology. I think also technology in terms of... <laughs> Dare I mention it, smart cities, but I think using technology in smarter ways, collecting data, evidence-based solutions, all of that has got to be good for cities, really. If there's a good access to that data, if there is accessibility to the right sort of data, and it's not just because if, it, if it's just for those that can pay for it, that will diminish the benefits, I think. What does smartest mean to you? A smart city is one that thinks about doing things in smart ways. That's what you've said recently. And I think that that sums it up. I'm sure if we look back, we could look at an ancient city and say, well, that was smart because they grew things locally and manufactured things very, very locally. I was reading an article about several monasteries in the UK. They've actually found that they had their own vineyards, mainly in the bottom half of England, I think. But uh, it's pretty hot there now anyway. Monks and monasteries were growing lots of wine because it was cheaper, probably, and because it was more sustainable than, you know, having to buy it in from France or other countries that traditionally had much more higher production levels. Being smart doesn't mean... It's not always all about the future. It's about understanding what was good in the past. It's not always about speed either, which was one thing that occurred to me. You know, if you think about it, there's a whole slow food generation now and people are looking at doing things more slowly. 
might mean we're doing them better. So I think that that's kind of interesting too. I think a smart city is a city that understands technology, knows how to use technology in a good way, and knows how to use it as a powerful tool, but also looks at other areas, looks at history, looks at the ways we've done things in the past, thinks about things. Again, innovation is a much used word, but I think that being innovative is thinking about doing things in a different way. I think as you've talked about, and we had a conversation previously about scientists, they get to the bottom of how things work. They're not always thinking of the future and how the future is going to work. And yes, that in some ways is religion, crystal balling. But I think that philosophy is an important tool that we've neglected. And I think philosophers would think about how is it we want to live and get back to those real values and emotions and needs that we have. And just as a society say, well, okay, how do we want to live? And we need to do more of that, not just stand back and let it happen. And I think, is that innovative? I think in some ways it probably is now, but I think it's something that probably happened in the past more often. Chris, I could ask you for hours, but what is your role in establishing the future of cities? We had a good session here where we have research people in-house now who were previously with Curtin University, and I find that quite exciting. Haim Charlie is really moving in a very exciting direction in regards to research and evidence-based. But we are fortunate in terms of having Emil and Kwa. It's about thinking of what is it Emil said this to me the other day. He said, uh, your team is quite good. He said, and Emil used to be, he has a PhD now, but he used to be a policeman. And he said, I like your team. You're like policemen. You think a bit like policemen. I said, what do you mean? And he said, you actually pin things up and you look at them and you look at the connections between people. And that's true. It's like those crime detective shows where you put everything up on the wall and And that is true because it is about creating those connections, seeing what connections exist. And the poor way that some cities have been designed and brought together is sometimes like a crime scene as well. So I think that we are like detectives. How can we do this better? There's been a crime. Look at how, you know, the opportunities that have been missed and lost. That excites me. I do think that uh, I used the word earlier, and I think you used it earlier as well, evidence-based. Let's collect the evidence. What is the data telling us? What is actually happening on the ground? What are all the relationships that we can tap into? So I see my role, particularly the older I get, I suppose, as really helping us to think about what sort of society we would like. You know, what do we feel about social housing? How do we do it in a very good way, like the Dutch did many years ago and still do, I think. How do we do that? How do we change our cities for the better? What are cities going to need in the future? We're currently undertaking a project at the moment. There's a few interesting projects with Rio, the mining camps. How do we think about them? And that's really about thinking about towns and that's main streets and elements that people are familiar with because mining camps are exactly that. They're camps and they are not very hospitable places and they don't tell you anything. They're alien to their environment. So how can we work with the topography that's there? How can we create places that are more interesting? And when people are in places that are interesting, that they can understand, it's because they've got a hierarchy of main streets and secondary streets and other things. 
when people understand their environment, they're much more able to relax. And once they relax, they're much more able to connect. And if they can connect, then they're going to manage themselves and others better. And I think that that's what cities do. And I think good cities really inspire people. And that's why we often go on holidays to cities, because they're inspiring places. Yeah, I suppose I'd like to inspire people in some way and be a bit of a detective and find out how we can create better places that enable communities to flourish. I like this designed detective approach. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? I think I'm very excited still about what I do. I've been doing it for a long time. I've reinvented myself a couple of times, but I'm very excited about what I do. Somebody asked me that question the other day and they said, oh, do you think that buildings, environment, do you think it does make a difference and change people? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I really do. And that's from my own upbringing, my own experiences. It changes me for the better and sometimes for the not so good. But I think it is worthwhile doing. I feel that I take a lot out of the environment. And I think that probably a closing thing would be so do the indigenous people of this country, this nation, the Wajok people here in Perth, in WA, they draw a lot on their environment. And so I still think there's a lot that we can learn from the indigenous peoples of this land. And, and I find that their connection to country is very inspiring to me. And I certainly feel a connection to places. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Fanny. It was really interesting to hear from Chris the designer's role as urban detectives, gathering information and solving urban challenges, not to mention his interest in better social housing with government involvement. Maria Yanez talked about similar better housing approach from the development side in episode 18. You can find out more about Chris online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Chris' approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for Cities podcast? 